present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our usual crew. We have our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. Our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hey, Katie. And calling in from the heartland of Texas, we have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hello, Katie. Thank you for making the time amend your queso and midnight movies and uh, everything else I understand goes on at Fantastic Fest. Absolutely. I've got a taco in one hand and a beer in the other. <laughs> it's, it's breakfast taco 8 time. 8 a.m.? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, And before we start, we should note that what you heard is a brand new theme song made for us by Dave Gonzalez, whose name you may recognize from still watching and his work on that show. Uh, Thank you, Dave. We're really excited about the theme song. We hope that you think of James Cameron and Sally Field and Jordan Horowitz and all the other people who you heard quoted in the intro theme song. So. Yeah, and I hope it finally puts to rest what Sally Field actually said at at those Oscars. (laughs) Right. Because people misquote it unfairly, I think. That's true. We could have just done misquoted Oscar speeches for that intro. (laughs) The timber of her voice the second time through is just so incredible. Like, I really, I'm not going to get tired of listening to that. Like, it is pure enthusiasm to still. Yeah, Yeah, we hope you don't get tired of listening to it either. Uh, So we are going to talk to Joanna about Fantastic Fest and her adventures in Texas, and then look a little bit ahead to the upcoming film festival in New York, the New York Film Festival which Richard and Mike and lots of other people in our New York office will be attending and seeing some stuff. Uh, and then in the second half of the show, we'll have Mike's conversation with John C. Riley, the star of the Sisters Brothers, which is exciting. So, Mike, we'll get you to pick your brain about that a little bit later. But first, Joanna, what what is Fantastic Fest? It is a, it's a festival that when we talk about fall festivals like you know, Telluride, Toronto, Venice, we don't get into, but people flock to it. It becomes a big media thing. It looks incredibly fun. Um, what has brought you to Texas? Yeah, you know, it's a it's like technically a genre film festival where they show a lot of horror films, a lot of uh, little sci-fi, some thrillers. And, uh, you know, I think I'm here for the first time because the I think the lines between what we consider genre and niche and cult- culty and what we consider broader appealing or even awards like season fair um, are, you know, are blurring definitely, especially last year with the like get out winning an Oscar. I think that really did do a lot to change our perspective of what, um, what we think of when we think of Oscars and horror in the same conversation. Um, but yeah, they, you know, it's, it's a great breeding ground, a great proving ground for a lot of cult things that films like John Wick came out of here or uh, a couple years ago, um, split the James McAvoy sort of return of M night Shyamalan, uh, premiered here, you know, so they, it's a great place to launch something, um, and see if this particular type of fan will champion it to a broader audience, I think. Do you feel like it distinguishes itself from um, South by Southwest? Because in that way, because th- that, that the film section of that festival is also kind of jo- genre-y, isn't it? Yeah, but, you know, South by tends to lean into more comedies, um, mm. mainstream comedies. Yeah, they do have more like culty genre stuff at South by than your average film festival. But Fantastic Fest is that sort of bumped up to 11. And it's a, like it's a really fun film festival in that it's all concentrated at one movie theater, which is an Alamo Draft House. There's like a big like 
sort of complex around it where there are bars and coffee shops and that sort of thing. And so everyone is just there. The filmmakers, the, you know, the fans, the press are all in one place for the whole week. Uh, you can go into the bar and talk to the director of whatever film you just saw. And that applies to both the, you know, the micro submissions and the major directors will hang out in the bar as well. And so it's just like, it just feels really um, intimate and nice. Yeah, you interviewed Jason Blum in a karaoke room, I believe. A Twin Peaks themed karaoke room was so cool. <laughs> it was like red curtains and the zigzag floor, and and like the the curtains were just like glowing on Jason's face. But yeah, I, I talked to Jason Blum, who you know we've talked about on this podcast as this you know the the head of Blumhouse Productions and and sort of the person I think ushering in uh, this particular era of horror. But I I, I sort of talked he was to a producer him, but- on Get Out, right? Right, a producer on Get Out. He's actually, he was actually one of Harvey Weinstein's like protégés. So he came up with Harvey Weinstein and there's this great interview with, um, Maureen Dowd in the New York Times that he gave where he talked about sort of, I don't know, the Stockholm syndrome of working for Harvey Weinstein, but you can see him take the good lessons of having worked with Harvey Weinstein in terms of being this sort of super producer, being this force, being this real champion for stories, and, um, you know, and bring that to a genre that he really loves, which is horror. And it's funny, I was, I was talking to him about, I don't know, I've been hearing this um, phrase a lot, prestige horror, or this idea that, you know, get out winning an Oscar means that, you know, horror is now this elevated genre. And he just did not like that at all, which was great. He was just like, he's like, I feel like prestige horror is what people say when they don't want to admit that they just liked a horror movie. They just want to call it prestige horror. And he was like, obviously, the Oscars are great. Obviously, we're glad we got an Oscar for Get Out. But he's like, but I don't want the snobs invading our genre i want to keep them out so it was it was an interesting thing you know and he he acknowledged the power obviously that we talk about all the time of um the academy awards uh you know that that it encourages maybe um i don't know art house directors or, or a different kind of director to take a chance on horror and i think you're seeing that throughout this festival like the the big splash of this festival, I would say, is Luca Guadagnino's Suspiria, which is obviously comes on the tail of his Oscar run for Call Me By Your Name. This was uh, this was in the works for years before Call Me By Your Name. It's not like he did Call Me By Your Name. He's like, well, gonna do a bloodbath about witches, you know, sort of thing next. But it is interesting, the overlap we see between um, Oscar contenders of recent years and... Um, you know, horror. I think that's fascinating. Jason Blum, I mean, it's a little disingenuous for for him to act like the Oscar just happened to get out. I mean, didn't he principally make it happen by spearheading a giant campaign and persuading Universal to get behind it? Absolutely. I, I don't think he, I don't think he would say, you know, he didn't want the award. I don't think he would. And, you know, and he, and he was, you know, he's like, I'm on the board of directors of the Academy Museum. He's like, I'm not I'm not down on Oscars. He's like, I, but I think he was just saying, um, I don't think it should change how we think about horror. I think, right. if anything, it should, um, hopefully, from his mind, uh, open the door for him to approach different filmmakers that he might otherwise be able to approach with horror ideas for them to direct. Um, in terms of Suspiria, Joanna, like, you know, because w- when that premiered at Venice and then all the other lineups for festivals came out and there was some kind of like, I don't know whether it was, you know, people were skeptical of why it didn't play at Telluride or Toronto or New York Film Festival. Um, and they said, oh, it's not playing at any more festivals. Well, it did. It played at Fantastic Fest, which it seems like a, a, a worthy home for it. 
um, before its release. How did it play, um, you know, beyond your, your reaction to it? I, it was an ecstatic reaction. And I mean, like, it, so it was the surprise screening, but it was the worst kept surprise screening I've ever seen in my entire life. Everyone knew all week that it was Suspiria. But, you know, of course, this is the audience for it. There is a lot of blood in this film. So I can see why maybe, I, I don't know if other film festivals turned up their nose at it or what happened um, exactly with that. But, you know, the reaction was ecstatic. But the, but this is a very thoughtful movie, a very artistic film. And, you know, that, that marriage of genre and artistry, I think, could put it in awards conversation. I don't know to what degree. I'm certainly, I was thinking about it uh, before we, you know, because as I've said before, this podcast has broken my brain. So whenever I come out of a movie, I'm like, well, what award could it be up for? And um, I was thinking about the the cinematographer on that, um, who's a, a Thai uh, cinematographer, um, Sayambu Muktiprom. Please forgive me if I mispronounced that. But he was also the cinematographer on Call Me By Your Name. This is a beautiful film. Really beautiful shot, beautifully shot. And he was nominated for a few awards last year, not the Oscar, but a few awards for Call Me By Your Name, which I think was also a beautiful film. So I could see Suspiria being in a lot of the visual categories. In terms of performance categories, I mean, a lot of what what a lot of the conversation around Suspiria has been has been this weird sort of thing where Tilda Swinton is playing multiple roles, but Amazon, which is you know distributing the film, is sort of lying about you know as are the Luca filmmakers. Luca Guadagnino as, has lied to people. Yeah, Luca Guadagnino conspiracy. Tilda Swinton read like a letter from so basically Tilda Swinton's playing a character that's obviously Tilda Swinton. It looks like Tilda Swinton. Then she's also playing this character who's like an old man under a lot of makeup, and she does a great job at it. But from you know, frame one, it's clear to me that it's Tilda Swinton. It's clear to a lot of people when they watch the trailer that it's Tilda Swinton. But, you know, at, at the Venice Film Festival, Tilda Swinton read a letter from the supposed, the made up 80 year old German actor who they say are, is playing the role and like his regrets that he couldn't be at the Venice Film Festival with them. Um, so, and they were keeping up the ruse here at Fantastic Fest in, in the press. We had, um, Screenwriter David Kajanik and Jessica Harper, who was in the original Suspiria and in this film, uh, were doing press and they were just, you know, lying through their teeth. But, you know, like that sounds more vindictive. You know, the, it's some sort of like fun thing that I think they're trying. I don't understand the point of it. Fake I find news it kind stunt, of maybe. I find it kind of annoying and maybe, yeah, maybe it's just to generate conversation around it. But I also believe, and this has been like sort of less talked about, that Tilda Swinton is playing yet again a third character in the film. Whoa. Um, under even more makeup. And so if you want to talk about awards uh, for performance, I think there's a possibility that Tilda Swinton for just the like sheer acting Olympics of it could get an, a nomination for but what category would you put her in? Um, I don't know. So. She plays all the blood in the movie, I heard. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, it, I, I feel like other people have compared it to Mother and the way that it premiered at Venice last year and then showed up at Toronto and kind of got a fairly harsh response that was echoed when it opened in theaters a few weeks later. So it does seem kind of smart to me whether or not the fest, other festivals wanted it or they held it from it just to be like, Suspiria is going to play in Venice where it's kind of an artsier crowd and it's going to play for genre people at Fantastic Fest and then we'll just let it go into theaters. Like they might 
have uh, avoided that kind of mother level backlash uh, with by doing that. This is such a better movie. Well, I liked Mother. I don't want to trash Mother, but like this is such a more enjoyable experience than Mother, where Mother was just very challenging. I think throughout, this is a film that's that's truly a, a joy to watch in many ways. Um, a bloody you know, joy. It, the blood is mostly reserved for the end, and it is. I mean, it is gruesome, but it's but it's like very. Just, just like a beautiful, really thoughtful, really interesting film. And, you know, we talk a lot, of course, about how the, um, you know, broader sociopolitical environments influence the award season talk. And you can't think of a better movie for, you know, the Me Too era, I think, honestly, than Suspiria. It's very much about, like, this idea of female empowerment, of being believed. There is no... Because Tilda Swinton is playing this old man character, there are no male actors with significant speaking roles in this film. There's two guys who have like tiny roles and that's it. It's all women, women interacting with women, like the sort of ambiguity of uh, female power. Is it evil? Is it good? We don't know. It's sort of interesting. And then this... um, there's also these, which you wouldn't get from like the preview or whatever. There's also these ideas of um, fascism. This is this is like post-war Berlin, so they're dealing with like the outcome of World War II, and then also the rise of certain terrorism groups in Berlin and the rise of this coven and sort of like fascism and what happens when you sit idly by and you know all the press around it. There's been a lot of talk of Trump in a way that doesn't feel as stretched as it sometimes does uh, when we apply the Trump lens to things. So I don't know. It's 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 I'll be fascinated to see if Suspiria gets embraced as warmly outside of the festival. The the last thing I want to talk about, and, and thank you guys so much for letting me yammer on, is uh, Lee Ching Dong's Burning, which I know um, premiered at Cannes. Richard, did you see it when you were there? I did, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, this is, you know, from, this is a, would you call it a thriller, Richard? A slow-burning thriller, uh, <laughs> yeah, a kind of mystery mood piece, yeah. I'm fascinated why this sort of, this can film that is being put forward as uh, South Korea's entry into the Oscars as foreign language film category is at Fantastic Fest, and I talked to Stephen Yun who, uh, you know, American audiences know from his work on The Walking Dead, uh, who, you know, relearned Korean for this role is great, I think, in this film uh, about it. And yeah, he was just he he is really excited about the way that that genre is bleeding into all different kinds of places. And you could have a film premiere at Fantastic or, you know, run at Fantastic Fest and can and it doesn't really seem that odd um you have films that can fit both molds so i don't know i think i think that's interesting and and i really like the film uh the word slow that richard just dropped there is is very accurate but but i think it's ultimately rewarding and a very beautiful film so i agree i wanted to ask you joanna before we move past fantastic fest the Alamo Drafthouse, its founder, Tim League, they've been, you know, speaking of Me Too stuff, they've been embroiled in a bit of stuff, you know, in terms of, you know, whether they allowed certain bad actors, be they Harry Knowles or whoever else, to sort of still exist at the theater, still exist at the festival. What was the kind of conversation or mood or surrounding that? Like, what was it ignored? Was it addressed? Uh, I'm just sort of curious how they dealt with that. Last year, Fantastic Fest happened, like, 
there are certain uh, Shape of Water was supposed to um, run at Fantastic Fest last year, and they pulled it because of the controversy around the Draft House and Fantastic Fest because it landed right when everything in Tex in the Texas films community was sort of coming to a boil, and um, there was a lot of conversation last year. Um, there were these big sort of like meetups with women last year that happened to talk about, you know, what does it mean for us to be here there? But there are writers who came, press who came to cover Fantastic Fest last year, women who were called like traitors for even showing their face. Um, this year, you know, Tim League, I've seen Tim League around South by Southwest various years. This is sort of his film festival. And though he's quote unquote back this year, I have not seen hide or hair of him. I have not seen him around at all. Um, he's not introducing any films. He's not doing anything. So he still has a very muted appearance. There was uh, another meetup uh, right before the festival kicked off uh, and meetups throughout the week of of women uh, in the press uh, talking about sort of how, how they feel about the state of things. Um, and then I think just by the selections of the films here, um, a lot of them are about female rage, female rage, female empowerment, female, the female perspective. And so I, I think there are way I'm not saying like, oh, it's all done and dusted. But I think you definitely see the effects of that still sort of running through this this year of the festival. So let's talk about the other upcoming festival that I guess is as different from Fantastic Fest as you possibly could be. The New York Film Festival, it happens in Lincoln Center. It brings in kind of the fancy Upper West Side residents who want to go see the latest in quality film. Uh, and it brings in uh, Richard, who actually you've probably seen a lot of what's at New York Film Festival already between Cannes and Toronto and Telluride. Um, but what what are you going to be tracking up to Lincoln Center for? Well, I will trek up for the opening night, which um, is the opening night film is the favorite. And then there's a party at Tavern in the Green afterward. And that party is very fun because it's kind of like, you know, back to school. You see a lot of people you work with and are going to be talking with a lot during the award season. And they're all just sort of in one space. And so that's kind of a good, good uh, way to inaugurate the season. Um, but yeah, there are, I mean, there's a lot that plays there from Cannes, from Toronto, from Telluride that I will not be seeing. But um, there are a few things that I haven't seen. The first being at Eternity's Gate, uh, which uh, is the movie starring Willem Dafoe, directed by Julian Schnabel, um, about Van Gogh. Um, also, Oscar Isaac is in it. Um, and Willem Dafoe won the Volpe Cup uh, in Venice for Best Actor for this movie. So, And this is the first festival post-Venice that it's played. So um, I'm very curious about that, even if like a Julian Schnabel movie about Van Gogh <laughs> is not like, <laughs> quite up my alley but we were so high on Willem Dafoe all of last award season and just felt like he was destined to win and then it didn't work out obviously but it does seem like that momentum could benefit him with this yeah for sure I mean again I don't know a, you know already Julian Schnabel movie about Van Gogh like that it, it maybe isn't quite weirdly as accessible as Florida Project was or at least what Dafoe's role in that movie was um, but yeah I think that like as these you know categories solidify we definitely should not count um, Willem Dafoe out of that hunt. I mean, are you not a Basquiat fan? I don't know. I Something about Schnabel, just like every time I walk by Palazzo Chupi on the, yeah. on the way on the West Side, I'm like, I get it. You know, but no, I I, I think he's, he's made he's, some good movies. He's made some definitely definitely good movies, and I think that he, you know, he has a signature style that has not gotten repetitive, and yet you when you see a Schnabel movie, you're like, oh, that's that's that. So, I, yeah. and I appreciate that. Yeah. And I feel like seeing that at Lincoln Center, like that's gonna kind of be the right yeah venue for that kind of thing. 
But, you know, Lincoln Center is not the only venue uh, at New York Film Festival this year because uh, the big, you know, United States, New York premiere of If Beale Street Could Talk, Barry Jenkins' film is going to be at the Apollo in Harlem where the movie is set. And I feel like that is going to be this, you know, after a a really well-received world premiere in Toronto, that's going to be a really nice homecoming for the movie. Uh, And I'm deeply curious to see what the reaction is. I expect it to be effusive, but like, Mm -hmm. we'll see. Yeah. I'm really curious about uh, The Favorite. And I know you guys have both seen it already, but I, I, it, the amount of people who have seen it has been pretty limited. It's been in Venice. It was a Telluride. It didn't play for like tons and tons of press at Toronto. So I feel like we're bracing for a real explosion in that movie's Oscar buzz, which has been existing for people who have seen it. But like Twitter is all of a sudden going to be all over like The Favorite gifts. I think. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The gifts are on, are on their way, uh, if not already being made as we speak. You know, I, I don't know how much it actually account, accounts for anything, but like, Again, I think The Favorite is a nice movie to play in New York in the yeah. early fall, you know, up in the glittery Upper West Side. Like, it just, like, that feels right. Yeah. Well, I think we've talked about how it's kind of theatrical. It'll yeah. You can see a New York theater-going audience, like, really loving it. Yeah. Um, and being less likely to be alienated than maybe some other kinds of audiences. Um, yeah. Because it's weird. It's not as weird as a lobster, but it's it's weird. But yeah, it's, it has it's, its awesome. yeah, it has its quirks, and I think another thing adding to the theatricality of it is that um, at the festival, when you go to the public screenings, not the press screenings, but uh, at least the pr- the premieres, um, as the the after the film ends and the credits are rolling, a light shines on a balcony above you, and it's all it's the filmmakers, like the actors and the director, oh, whoever, wow. <laughs> and, and everyone stands and like you know claps toward them, and it's like very dramatic. Um, yeah, it's true in a kind of fun way, and I think that making that the opening night festival, you know, film. Because there has been some talk about this year's New York Film Festival. This is the first, well, it's the first time since in 11 years, I believe, that um, there, the opening night was not a world premiere. Um, and it's actually, I don't know when, when the last time this was, but there are no world premieres at the festival this year. It's all stuff that's played. So I don't know what that the thinking is. Sometimes there's a secret screening. I don't know what that could possibly be. I think we'd probably know by now. Um, but so, yeah, it, it might not be the most... Um, exciting year for the festival because of um they don't have anything brand new but like what they've programmed of like quote unquote you know it's not old at all but like you know festival stuff it's good it's a strong Mm -hmm. lineup um Mm -hmm. and i think that between the favorite and beale street um those two and roma and roma yeah you know roma you know has played every festival this fall so far and so this will be kind of its last stop before its last big stop before it it opens um or it's released on netflix so I think, you know, so some fortunes could be made or, or I think at least solidified. I, you know, I don't know, I don't know that anything's going to come out of the blue here. But, um, you know, again, I think Beale Street is the one to keep an eye on uh, out of the festival. I'm also finally going to get to see Wildlife, which I have missed now at Sundance Cannes, Toronto. <laughs> 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 Something about that movie. I don't know, but I'm finally going to see it. Yeah, Roma will also be playing uh, here in uh, Chapel Hill, North Carolina at the 919 Film Festival, which is brand new this year. And I'm going to plan to go see it again on the big screen because, as we talked about, seeing it on Netflix just doesn't seem the right the right way to do it. And I'm really curious about what like a non-Toronto audience will be like. I think the Lincoln Center audience, I imagine, will be pretty tuned in with it. And I'm not sure what to expect from these audiences since the festival is new, but uh, the big screen Roma experience. I think it's it's smart of them, honestly, to just roll it out as many places as they possibly can uh, and build that head of steam. I hope everyone, all the you know the Richies that see it at at Lincoln Center, will go home and hug their nannies or their maids. <laughs> <laughs> Like the end of Crash. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking the same thing. It's playing here in um, in California in like a, a week and a half or something like that. I was like, yeah, this is gonna it's gonna hit very home for the Californian uh, Richies. So we'll see. <laughs> 
So before we head into the interview in the back half of the episode, we want to talk briefly about the documentary Free Solo, which we talked about some. Uh, uh, Richard and Mike, you guys both saw it at Telluride and it kind of terrified you uh, off of the mountains, I think. That's the only reason you came back to, to sea level. Um, and it's opening in theaters this weekend. Uh, and Richard, I received a screener of it today uh, that had a quote from you instructing me to not watch it on a screener and only see it on a big screen. So uh, <laughs> am I allowed to disobey you and watch the screener? I mean, at your own risk, sure. I mean, I can't, I can't tell you what to do. No, I mean, look, see it, see it however you can see it. Um, it's such a worthy, you know, film um, because of the incredible, sh- you know, climbing shots. It would be, it's great to see on a big screen, but you know, that's not always easy for everybody. So, you know, I do know that National Geographic, which is releasing the film, it, it it's it'll be out almost. It'll be like a day after this podcast airs. They're putting a lot behind it. Mike, you and I were at a screening at Lincoln Center. I don't know if yeah. it was technically part of it. It wasn't technically part of the film festival, but like it no, was they just there. had their own yeah. special, you know, gigantic premiere at Jazz at Lincoln Center. They did it up with a big party afterwards. Um, and and Richard Lawson doing a and A with the filmmakers and the the subjects. Um, and what I think is so interesting about this film is, you know, you kind of have to get incredibly lucky to um to do this kind of documentary where you're following somebody and then something unbelievable happens like something historic never been done before or 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 things take a crazy turn like i always think of remember that crazy old documentary brothers keeper it's like how did they ever think (laughs) that all this stuff would happen they couldn't have known and and you know to make it so there's you can go back like like three identical strangers is a case where you can go back into time and tell a crazy crazy story but in this case like they just kind of got lucky i mean i mean you've got a, a husband and wife um filmmaking duo chai uh vassarelli is that and and uh jimmy chin and so chai has a background as like a documentary filmmaker and jimmy is a mountain is a climber and a photographer um and so so I think Chai was the one who saw that that this subject, um, uh, Alex Honnold, Alex Honnold is like such an interesting guy. Like, what a strange guy! And then Alex was the one who was like, "Well, if you're going to make a film about me, I better do this unbelievable climb that no one's ever done before." Um, you know, in Yosemite, and and the whole movie is basically everybody like being anxious that he's going to get killed doing it. And, Which you know, was like a very high possibility. I yeah, mean, yeah. And then, I mean, by the time they go through all the other people who've died doing basically this kind of thing, but not even as ambitious, you're like, this guy is. is if he doesn't die on this, it's going to happen another time. A good friend of theirs died during the filmmaking, right? You know, not yeah. like while you know, you know, not on camera, but like while he was climbing somewhere. You know, so it's it's a crazy thing, and I think it's really interesting. You know, they said during the Q and A, I hadn't heard this before that, like you said, Mike, that they had set out, they they had a film plan. They were going to just make a little character study. You know. With some climbing footage, <laughs> right. obviously, yeah. of this of this insane person, um, wonderfully insane. But uh, and then, yeah, he was like, "Well, I mean, I need for dramatic effect." And you have you think of yeah. someone telling you that as a filmmaker, like, "So I'm going to really super duper risk my life right. just to make your film more interesting." And that's I not mean, why. On the he other did hand, it, he said like he was going to do it anyway. Yeah. But that, but they, yeah, that. So then another piece of the film becomes their anxiety and and almost sort of guilt. Like, yeah. what if we are encouraging him to do this thing and he kills himself? So. Um, anyway, I mean, not to go, I just feel like if the documentary branch doesn't fuck this up, like this should be, 
there's you, there's a lot of ways to make a great documentary, but but my favorite kind, I think, is when something absolutely unbelievable happens and the filmmakers were already making a movie, you know, and yeah. at some level, like they spent three years on this thing, following him around, not knowing if he was going to ever do it. It seemed very unlikely that he'd be able to do it. Um, and so and when you see what he does, it's like, how the hell did he do that? Not to spoil it, but like, you know, he's, yeah, he, you, you interviewed him. So and I would say, you know, n- you know, I, I myself uh, include myself in this, like, if you feel so sort of averse to the sort of vaguely sports documentary realm. I mean, you know, I've seen a 30 for 30 here and there, like, you know, but like, it's not something I seek out. This has all of the, you know, interesting climbing stuff, the sort of athleticism of it, but also this incredible character study, this really interesting meta commentary about documentary filmmaking. So there's something I think in there for everybody, which is why, you know, we don't think necessarily of National Geographic as being sort of an Oscar-y caliber. I mean, they make amazing things, but like, not they don't make Oscar movies, but like this feels... Um, so full-bodied enough that it you know sort of transcends its genre, I guess. Yeah, I think that's what's cool about it is you got Jimmy, who's a very National Geographic guy, and then Chai is like classing up the joint and bringing the kind of like Oscar-y character study to it, and together it, they've really made something extraordinary. So, Katie, you've been looking into this documentary branch stuff. Are they going to screw this up and like just not not let it be? Uh, this nominated? is the question because it's Nat Geo who also had Jane last year, who did these incredibly elaborate events like what you're talking about. They did like a live screening of the movie at the Hollywood Bowl with an orchestra playing the score, and you know we had talked about Jane amongst ourselves as just like it's going to win, like it has to be. The, uh, the documentary winner and then it didn't make the short it didn't make the five nominees um, and then I as I've been kind of looking into documentaries I found a piece uh, written in Hollywood Reporter last year by this guy Adam Benzine who had been a nominee for his short documentary um, that basically posited that there are people within the branch who knew that Jane was going to win they knew it was such a, a heavy hitter but it was also maybe too fluffy it wasn't as serious as something that got nominated like Abacus the Steve James documentary or Last Man in Aleppo about Syria so enough people in this relatively small branch of the Academy were like you know what other people are going to put Jane on there I'm going to go push this Syrian documentary that's really hard to watch but really important uh, and that's how it didn't get nominated yeah it just feels like the branch is like a, it's like a German philosophy department where they they just are kind of like anti-fun or so I don't know what's well, going but on but like the rest of the academy is also changing you know they've invited a lot more people to join the documentary branch along with all the other branches of the academy so it could totally change from year to year which is why like no one really knows what to expect especially because we had this summer of documentary hits which we talked about you've got uh won't you be my neighbor the mr rogers documentary rbg about ruth peter ginsburg and three identical strangers which were just runaway box office smashes by like every definition um and then you add free solo to it that's four i mean likely hit documentaries so is it just likely that one of them is going to get snubbed when you're trying to make room for something smaller there might just be too much good stuff for all of it to make the cut Another well-reviewed movie from this summer, uh, Minding the Gap. I don't even know if that's eligible because it kind of it was on Hulu, but maybe it played theatrically. I think it. I think it is. Yeah, because that that's definitely been critically beloved. You know, I, I don't know. Michael Moore has a movie out. You know, yeah. L- um, Fahrenheit Eleven Nine. Kobe, does Kobe Bryant have anything this year? <laughs> didn't Michael Moore's documentary make like no money at the box office? Yeah, it didn't do well. Yeah. So and the reviews were spotty, but you never know. Yeah. You know, people de- we're, we're in sort of desperate times. Maybe people want him to scream about it for a couple hours. I feel like if you're going to go for like desperate times panacea, like that's why you have uh, the Mr. Rogers doc or RBG. Like I think those are are like. Um, I don't know, political message votes, maybe. I don't know. I was I was talking to a fellow film critic uh, this weekend 
Uh, we were talking about actually this very thing about the documentary category and, and how it's kind of stacked this year in, in a commercial way. Um, and uh, he was like, oh, I'm, I'm not seeing RGB. I'm, not, I'm never going to see that. Or I'm not going to see it for a long time. And he, he was like, it just stresses me out. Every time I look at her, I'm like, don't die, don't die, don't die. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, like, and that was definitely how it felt yeah. watching it. I was like, oh, God, there's so much at stake. Just stay alive. Please stay alive. Yeah. <laughs> Although seeing her work out is, is soothing. What do you guys think about this idea that, like, I do kind of feel like you should be rewarded if the documentary is you captured something bananas live versus I went back and meticulously assembled a story based on a lot of, I don't know. I mean, I thought that Jane, on the other hand, like Jane, where they where they had that cache of, of film, I mean, maybe the argument with Jane was just like, anyone can find that and then make that movie. Like, it's not yeah. that hard. Yeah, and I would argue that Jane, um, I was sort of one of the detractors of that movie. I think it's kind of like a lazy hagiography. I don't think it really goes into anything of her, the, you know, she interrupted ecosystems. She was really irresponsible in the way that she dealt with the apes, um, chimpanzees, um, by by a lot of sort of scientific standards. And, yeah. uh, and the movie could have gone into that while also using this incredible archival footage. Right. She's undoubtedly an interesting person who's lived an interesting life. But like, so yeah, I think that, um, you know, I think there are a lot of different ways to make a documentary. I think we get used to a sort of certain standard, where, you know, talking head, archival footage, you know, um, whether, whether it's, you know, Errol Morris or, or even, you know, Ken Burns or whatever. But uh and free solo is 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 not doesn't do anything crazy with its filmmaking necessarily, but uh, they happen to be there, and they also knew what to do with it, yeah. you know. And they knew how to. I mean, it's not hard. I mean, he's climbing crazy he's climbing with like Capitan, eight yeah. guys, yeah, yeah, hanging off the edge yeah. of the of the cliff, you know, and all that stuff. Yeah. But yes. On the other um, hand. so I think that like I think on the technical merits it succeeds, and then on the whether they're accidental or not, um, and then um, but like I said, you know, there's also this more thoughtful side to it that I find interesting. And you know, while I'm criticizing beloved documentaries, I don't think the Mister Rogers documentary is very good. Uh, I haven't seen RGB. Uh, R- BG, uh, yet, for that same reason that David Sims or my, you know, fellow film critic said is like I that stresses me out. Um, I will watch it before year's end, of course, but um, yeah. So I don't know. Right now, I would vote for Free Solo, but I'm biased, I guess. I think well, I think it might come down to you know we've talked about the changing um, demographic of the Academy, and we we are aware that the Academy is pushing for more popular films, whether literally or otherwise, to be included in order to, uh, you know, ramp up interest uh, for audiences watching uh, on ABC next year or whatever, um, you know, which is, you know, whether or not that's why they want to do a popular film category, it definitely is. But I can see them, whatever power they might have in all of this, you know, whatever you might say about the Mr. Rogers doc or RBG or Three Identical Strangers, like these are films that so many people I know saw, you know, and so and for what, like, that's a huge difference in the documentary category, where usually we have to explain to people what these various documentaries are, because they've not seen them or heard of them. But there are at least three and then maybe four if going solo manages to hit wide, uh, that people are uh, familiar with and excited about. And I will just, uh, you know, take this opportunity to lovingly disagree with about with Richard because I thought the Mr. Rogers documentary maybe not as like a piece of art um, but as a piece of of film like filmmaking or or a fun fine times at the, at the movies maybe that makes me basic but the Mr. Rogers documentary really worked on me so I'd say one more thing for Free Solo when you talk about the changing academy any academy member under 45 has probably met 
chai by now she is like Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is one social person um she's very well connected she's incredibly charming and and lovely and you know she's puts in the hours to to get to know people so she will be a major asset for that film if it does proceed when i did the q a she made me feel like i was the only person who'd ever interviewed her about this film and she thank you so much (laughs) and it was like no she's 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 good at this a force to be reckoned with so this week, I wanted to talk to you about a little podcast called Blank Check. Richard, I believe you're familiar with this program. Yes, I am in the rare Five Timers Club and that I've been a guest on the show five times. Don't rub it in, yeah, man. I'm, sorry. Just, I'm working on I think I'm at three. And, oof, well, you don't live in New York. I know. I know. I make it difficult. And I and I did bring a baby for one recording. So I feel like that gives me That's a, a great episode. Yeah, everyone should listen to that one. It's Titanic. <laughs> that's the Titanic, right? Yes. Oh, it's oh a yeah. Great episode. Uh, so Blank Check is a podcast hosted by friends of ours named David Sims, who's been a previous guest on Little Gold Men and Griffin Newman. Uh, and it is a deep dive into director's filmography. So if you kind of listen to this show and listen to us talk about award season and how these careers work and how they grow from year to year, um, Blank Check is basically the show for you. Their level of knowledge is is incredible. I think they, they one of us basically every single time, right, Richard? Yeah, I mean, they're... They're just two guys who just, like, spent all of their childhood and adolescence just absorbing not only movies, but, like, the culture surrounding movies, box office figures. Oscar message boards. Oh, yeah. I mean, their, their knowledge is, is is wide and encyclopedic. But that's not to say that the podcast is dry. It's really funny, too. David is a film critic for The Atlantic, but, you know, which sounds dry, maybe, but, like, he's very funny. <laughs> uh, Griffin is an actor. He plays Arthur on The Tick, the Amazon show. He's also done a lot of comedy. So they, they mix that in. And there's a self awareness in with the kind of you know serious film talk they have uh, developed such a following that they have entire subreddits devoted to their in jokes and running threads that run throughout the entire series so yeah blank check they're currently wrapping up a miniseries on ang lee uh they recently did their life of high episode so for all you oscar fanatics that might be a great one to jump in on uh and then next up is the uh the nancy myers miniseries uh which was the winner of the march madness they did there's there's a lot going on in the show and a lot for people who love little gold men to check out yeah and the ang lee season concludes with this really incredible episode with a fr- another frequent guest, I believe another five-timer, um, J.D. Amato, who uh, is a comedian, filmmaker, friend of both David and Griffin's, um, who, you know, they're talking about Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk, which was Ang Lee's most recent film, and because of the crazy frame rate stuff and all the new technology that movie employed, it offers J.D. a chance to go deep onto into basically how cameras work, how filmmaking works. It's a fascinating kind of overview of uh, of the real technical craft of filmmaking while again also being funny. Uh, and then the upcoming Nancy Meyer season, somebody might be joining the Six Timers Club. Oh, stay tuned. The suspense is building. So you can find Blank Check with Griffin and David uh, wherever you get your podcast and, uh, you know, tell them we sent you. So now, Mike, let's share the interview that you did with John C. Riley about the Sisters Brothers. Uh, as I understand it, you, you kind of got him in the you got got him in the room, and then the first thing he did was kick out all the handlers, which made for I think a better conversation as, as usually happens. It sounds like you guys really got into it. First thing he did was take off his beautiful hat, which he had purchased from this uh, hat store in Chicago. Um, and I was like, did you buy it in Chicago? And he goes, oh, no, they send it to me. I buy so many hats from this place. But it was like pristine, gorgeous green hat. Then he was like, can you guys leave so that we can uh, like really just, you know, have a real conversation, which I was actually kind of pondering doing, um, build, trying to build up the courage to do. Um, so, yeah, it was great. We had a good chat and we talked. You know, one of the things I just wanted to do, because there's he's, he's been interviewed a fair amount recently, and and that was actually kind of helpful because I read all the interviews and and 
was able to do follow up on stuff. But one of the things he had said in one of the other interviews was that he he's always kind of a sidekick. He's always in a duo. And so I was excited to talk to him about Joaquin Phoenix, but also um, Will Ferrell and also Philip Seymour Hoffman and, um, you know, and some of the other folks that he's had these great kind of and, and Steve Coogan, because he's got um, he's got four movies coming out this year. Um, but the one that he wants to talk about and is and is touring in support of, as it were, is the sister's brother because he sister's brothers because he and his wife produced it. His wife read the book before it was even published and was like, this is a movie. And so they, they went and pursued the rights and he, uh, he kind of shepherded it from there to here. So, um, I, I enjoyed it. It was, it was a fun talk. I'm so excited to listen to this interview, but what's so fascinating to me, I, I read that book knowing that this movie was coming. And once you know that John C. Riley is playing that role, it really helps that book connect because you just hear every <laughs> single line in John C. Riley's voice and it's perfect. It's just it's a it's a beautiful match of character and actor. So let's listen to Mike's conversation with John C. Riley. So I'm thrilled to be here with John C. Riley, who has four films coming out this year. And the one we're going to talk about first, certainly, is Sisters Brothers, a Western, a kind of unconventional Western. And you were really, you and your wife were really instrumental in making the film happen. Is that right? Yeah, we were working on an independent film with Aza Jacobs called Terry. And my wife, Allison Dickey, was producing that film. I was in it. And at the end of it, we loved the writing so much because Patrick DeWitt, the author of this book, wrote that script as well. We asked Pat if he had anything else, and he just so happened to have this manuscript that wasn't even hadn't even gone to the publisher yet. So, uh, yeah, it, we both read it very quickly and realized, oh, my God, this would make an incredible <laughs> film. And specifically, this character of Eli, I felt really connected to. So uh, here we are seven years later. Yeah. And what was it about the character that, that drew you to him? Well, in general, Pat's book is a really uh, original take on the Western. Rather than, you know, base the story on other Western myths, which is what a lot of kind of Western stories do, it's sort of this cumulative effect of this idea we have about the West. Pat went into the actual historical record and, you know, looked at what was happening in San Francisco in 1851. And turns out it was a really interesting place. It was like a very multicultural place. There were people just streaming in from everywhere. I found this incredible um, archival photograph from the time, and you won't even believe it, but when you, it's a real photograph, and it looks like a forest with all the trees, with all the um, leaves taken off the trees. And what it is is the San Francisco Bay, and it's so full of boats that have mm. been abandoned that it <laughs> looks like a forest. That's thousands and thousands of boats. So what would happen was a boat would land at San Francisco and the captain would just lose his crew immediately. Everyone would just run into the hills to look for gold. Right. So the whole place was just teeming with people like that from all over the world. So Pat's book, he looked at what it was really like to be alive at that time. But then also there's this startling kind of emotional vulnerability to all the men in the book. Yeah. And that's something we also don't see a lot of in Westerns. Western men tend to be sort of opaque and stoic and hard to read and and just tough, you know. And these guys, because my character Eli in the book is sort of the narrator of the story, you really you hear what it's like inside him, what it's like to be a killer and what it's like to be, you know, connected to this brother so intensely and 
what it's like to feel like you're overweight in 1851. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> just really learn how to funny use little vulnerable details. Time. Yeah, like learning how to brush your teeth for the very first time <laughs> as an adult man. Like, that's one of the funniest scenes. I mean, how do you approach that in 2018? Like, what would it be like if I had no idea what this thing did or, or how anyone used it before? Yeah, it was a challenge actually, because of all the, th- of, I mean, brushing your teeth is something that really is autopilot at this point <laughs> right. for most of us, right? Yeah. But yeah, I had to look at it like, okay, well, this what is this object? Here's this thing. <laughs> I got to put it in my mouth and my teeth are meant to get clean from this. So how, what's the best way to use this brush? You, you just have to take it step by step and, and it ends up being pretty funny as it turns out. Yeah, yeah. Well, and you, you mentioned, you know, brothers and family and you and Joaquin Phoenix, um, I understand, really did get close making the film. Can you talk about how you guys got along and what it was like making the movie with him? Well, we'd met a couple times socially before, Joaquin and I. We have our friend Paul Thomas Anderson in, in common, and mm-hmm. I'd seen him a couple times, but really briefly. And he was very nice, but we didn't really get to know each other at all. And then, you know, I held him in great esteem, of course. He's like, I think Joaquin is like the greatest actor working right now. So I had a lot of respect for him, but I didn't really know him. And I realized when we first started working together after he agreed to do the movie, it was hard to even make eye contact. <laughs> you know, he's such an intense personality, and, and I suppose in some ways I am too. It was just sort of this dance of like, how we're supposed to be as close as people can get in life. You know, these two brothers they've suffered this trauma together and they've spent every single waking moment together their whole lives traveling killing people and this strange life they have so i knew like man i how are we going to do that and i realized with joaquin uh, you know talking wasn't wasn't going to be the thing because <laughs> he just doesn't like to overanalyze things or you know he, he just he's very private and he just rather the truth just emerged from being with each other, so I, w- I just quickly adapted to that. and So we take these long walks together, like hours at a time, without saying anything other than, where should we go? I don't know. Up that hill? Okay. Let's go. <laughs> like that. that was it. For three hours or something. And then, um, you know, over time, we started to really open up to each other and get to know each other very well. And, you know, what I come away with is like someone that I'll love for the rest of my life, you know? Yeah. You have these really intense, intimate periods of time as an actor. And, and sometimes you end up with um, with someone that you really love. And I, I can definitely say that's true of Joaquin now. Because you've talked recently about these duos, acting duos, that mm-hmm. that's something that's common for you. And you've got well, this a hard subject up. to avoid. I mean, all four of these movies that right. I've coming out, all four are partnerships. You know? Yeah. So what's it? And a lot I of mean, my other famous work of the past has been with a partner. So I mean, you've got this Sherlock Holmes movie coming up with Will Ferrell, and you guys have obviously done you know a lot together. Step Brothers yeah. is now sort of canonized as one of the great comedies, um, rightly so. So what's what's it like with Will? I mean, it, is that a very different relationship than the one with with Joaquin? Uh, yeah. I mean, the truth is, you know relationships are as different as people and people are unique so yeah even if you try to do a film or you know form a relationship with someone on camera in in the same ways you've done before it doesn't work you have to recognize like what's this person about you know the the process of becoming a partner with anybody is really just knowing when to 
take the lead and knowing when to follow. You know, it's a dance. Yeah. You're getting to know someone and f- you're figuring out what makes them comfortable or uncomfortable and you just have to be sensitive, you know? So I was, I was sort of born sensitive for better or worse. So <laughs> that said, those two guys, it's funny you point out of all the duos I've done, those two guys are two of the funniest people I've ever met. Yeah. And of course, it's obvious with Will because he's a genius comedically, but Joaquin is also very, very funny Yeah, on a personal level. You know, once you know him and once he knows you and once you develop some inside jokes together, oh my God, like he made me laugh so hard. I mean, we lived together for periods of time on this movie, the same yeah. apartment and we'd cooking for each other and we ended up getting really close. Uh, yeah. So very different people, of course, Joaquin and, and Will, but but the process of of forming a bond with somebody is uh, one of just opening your heart to who the person really is and seeing who they are, not who you think they are from before or who you need them to be, but what they're really like in the moment. You is know? that especially hard when people are sort of world famous that you're going into this with? You know, for better or worse, a lot of times with actors, like I haven't seen a lot of their most famous work. Like I just have realized... And I think the same was true with Joaquin. He doesn't talk. We don't talk about that stuff, you know? Yeah. We see each other and we're like, okay, who are you in this moment? Who do you want to be to me? Who do I want to be to you? And it's often a big relief for people to be able to leave aside this baggage that, the so-called baggage that, you know, people uh, think about them already, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, the film is very much about family, and you grew up in a big family, right? I mean, yeah. what was what, what was that like growing up, and did you draw on any of that in the, in the film? Well, you know, it's funny because I do have three brothers and two sisters. I grew up in a big Irish Catholic, Irish Lithuanian Catholic family, and yeah, those were intense relationships. Of course, it was almost like t- too many people in the house to actually form relationships with. Right, individual people. It's just so many of us. Yeah. And all of us off with our different friend groups and stuff. But the partnerships that that really reminded me of this relationship with Joaquin are the partnerships that I've had with people creatively, like Paul Thomas Anderson or or other friends of mine that are very close to me. You know, you, you can sometimes family is by blood and sometimes family is by choice. And you can get as close to a person as you want if you if they're willing, you know? Yeah. So a lot of the kind of feelings, I mean, I did a movie called Stan and Ollie too about Laurel and Hardy and those guys, that was like a marriage almost. They didn't even yeah. know each other before they worked together, but they, I, I don't know, it's, it's funny. Like just because someone's your blood brother doesn't necessarily mean you go to those super deep intimate places with each other, you know? Sometimes yeah. a person that you meet in your life depending on what you share with them, you can get really, really close. All right, well, I'm going to continue with my theme. What about Steve Coogan? What was that partnership like? He's playing Laurel to your heart, Yeah, he plays Stan Laurel. Steve is a brilliant comedian, of course. Steve is also someone who, it's this particular kind of English comedy where he, he both can sort of let go and improvise like the wittiest, funniest people, but there's also this analytical aspect to it that English people have where they 
they understand why something is funny. Right. <laughs> you know? It's like, well, if you say it like this and this and this, and then you wait for the third part, and then you say the third part after a pause, then it's funny. Like, right. Steve has that incredible ability. It's almost like a writerly ability to, to analyze comedy like that. So when you're we're, we're working together on doing, you know, Laurel and Hardy and these famous bits and scenes from their movies and songs and dance numbers so it was really great because a lot of it we had to kind of reinvent because a lot of their theatrical show that they did is sort of lost in the sands of time but yeah having someone like steve was incredible steve another one like i'm really lucky i have to say <laughs> i've picked my partners very well well it's here it's, i am saying again one of the funniest people i've ever met but it's true well, it's funny when you say that that kind of analytical approach to comedy, it makes me think of the famous scene from The Trip when he is arguing over how to um, impersonate Michael Caine. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's like... <laughs> no, it's like, that's Steve all day long, every day. Like, that's... Right. I mean, that's the brilliant thing about those Trip movies, which I love. Him and Rob Brydon, it's like, they're real friendship, and a lot of the stuff that they goof on is just exactly the stuff that they actually talk about in real life. He doesn't come off as the easiest guy in the world Steve? to be around in those in those movies. I mean Yeah, I think that's but I think that's part of the humor, you know, like right. being a dick or being an asshole is like funny, you know? Right. And Steve minds that. And in an actual real life, he's a very humble and like loving person. He still can be a real um smart ass, of course, like his characters, but He's not nearly as, as much of a dick as he plays on TV. Do you have a favorite Western? Well, I grew up in the, you know, I was born in 1965. So, like, all those Sergio Leone movies and Clint Eastwood movies, they're kind of like more classic Westerns of the of the 1940s and 50s. That stuff seemed a little bit corny to me growing up. Like, I was more interested in the weird ones, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, and yeah. Outlaw Josie Wales and those kind of things. I don't particularly have a favorite one. I do like, even though this is not in the time period that I just described, but High Noon is a really oh, yeah. beautiful movie because yeah. Gary Cooper has such empathy and there's such there's such a real human quality to him that to see someone trapped in this violent, like, you know, that situation he finds himself in it just seems so desperate. Uh well, it's funny. Really I thought about high, high Noon in relation to this film because your character well, there's a couple is trying of shots to... that are almost exactly out of High Noon. Oh, yeah. There's the one part where I have this shootout by myself while Joaquin's character is wounded. Yes. I have to handle this one situation by myself. And the geography of that town and the way the shots are set up, I think, I think Jacques purposely was looking at certain shots from High Noon for that. But also, and, and I, that totally sounds right, and they are reminiscent, but also... Um, uh, just that Eli, your character, is kind of trying to get out the same way. The reluctant sort of gunslinger, you know, yeah. is is maybe a bit of a theme. Well, if you look at the truth of these guys, you know, the story of the Sisters Brothers is when they were little kids, they had this abusive alcoholic father who was beating them and their, and their mother, and they eventually had to get rid of this guy. And when they did, that trauma as children is what propelled them into their life of murdering people. It turns out they were good at it. They were pressed into service. So... There's a sympathy that you have for them because it's almost like they're these child soldiers. Like you hear about these situations in Africa and some places in the war-torn parts of the world where children are pressed into battle. And I mean, how do you fault a child for doing that? You know, you're pressed into this life before you even develop any empathy or any spirituality or you become like a fully realized human being. So 
I think that's one of the reasons that the characters are so compelling in the movie. You just see them as these lost boys in a way. Yeah. Yeah, they're having this kind of belated awakening, mm-hmm. maybe, to another other sides of yeah, life. Yeah, and then they meet Jake Gyllenhaal and Riz Ahmed's characters, and they form some of the first friendships they've ever had in their whole yeah. lives outside of each other. So, I don't know, there's some really interesting first moments for people in this movie, the, whether it's the first toothbrush or the, the first time you have like a, an open emotional conversation with another person besides your brother, you know? Yeah, yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about, I saw you and Philip Seymour Hoffman in, in True West way back in the day, and obviously you guys did a lot, Another of, a duo. lot of films together as well. <laughs> I mean, yeah, can we talk about that that duo too, and, and Phil Hoffman? And yeah, Phil and, I, uh, Phil and I came up together through Paul Anderson's movies. I'll never forget when Paul found Phil for Hard Eight, Paul's first movie. He's like, I just found the next John C. Riley," <laughs> And I was like, <laughs> fuck you, man. <laughs> And then, of course, I met Phil, and I was like, oh, my God. All right, here we go. <laughs> this guy's amazing. Uh, yeah, so we worked together with Paul first, and then and then I actually convinced him to do True West on Broadway with me. And that, I think, I think if Phil was here, he would, he would agree that was a pretty defining moment in our lives. We were thrust into the crucible of the Broadway theater scene and – awards and all that kind of stuff and we got very good reviews and the play itself was this incredibly demanding psychodrama we switched characters well, I was gonna say just to make it even harder you yeah. switch characters every night right yeah so not every night every three performances oh okay which sounds easier except on a day when you do the matinee one way and the evening performance in in the other way that wow suddenly becomes like what it was really interesting it was like doing two plays in rep or something uh, but yeah, Phil. Phil was a lion, you know, a master. Uh, ironically, you know, he played the master in that film. But yes. um, yeah, he really was someone like I don't know. We, we might not n- never see another guy like that in our lifetimes. Well, let me ask you. You know, this our our podcast is all about awards. We talk about the Oscars all the time. The 2003 Oscars must have been insane for you. You were nominated for uh, Best Supporting Actor for Chicago. Right. And you were in three of the five nominated Best Picture movies. Right. The Hours, Chicago, and Gangs of New York. So what was that night like? That was pretty surreal because for every time someone won something that I was associated with, I would stand up and say, hey, congratulations, man, as they were heading to the stage. And then <laughs> I was also surrounded by people who didn't win these various things. Like, hey, sorry, man. You know, like it was this bizarre thing. Like, And also for me, I was really kind of somewhat, I mean, among filmmakers, I think I was known, but among general the general kind of matrix of Hollywood and the awards thing, I don't think people really knew who the hell I was. So suddenly I just, like, I couldn't be ignored, you know? Yeah. Even though I was playing Mr. Cellophane. Uh, <laughs> these movies, um, they all came out at the same time. And yeah, that, someone s- said this last year, something about a John C. Riley award where it's become a thing. If you can get three, if you, if you can be in three of the best picture nominees, but yes, yeah, but yeah, now yeah. there's yeah. 10 nominees. So it's, it's easier. I'm just I mean, saying, it's a, it's, yeah. Yeah, it's a, unless they go back to five, I don't know if, any, if or they should have do to do what I did six. that year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And did you go out, uh, and Chicago won, obviously, so that must have been fun. Did you go out to all the after parties and everything? I mean, do you have any memories from that whole Honestly, that whole period of time was so, I wasn't ready for it, I don't think, honestly. I wasn't, I've never won anything. I've never won awards. Still, to this day, I haven't, maybe I 
I don't think I've ever won an award where I was in competition with other people for something. So it's really foreign to me. And this whole idea of like going out and trying to win an award, I was like, what, yeah. what is that? I didn't even know. <laughs> I didn't even know that's what people did. When I, when I was nominated, they were like, okay, so you got to go to this party, you know, this one, you got to meet this person. I was like, why? In order to win. I was like, well, I, I, I had this, you know, innocently thought it was a meritocracy and that just <laughs> people would just vote for what they liked. You know, I didn't realize there was all this glad handing involved but um so yeah it was a little overwhelming honestly i had gone kind of under the radar for so long i think i'd made 25 or 30 movies at that point and all of a sudden i was getting all this attention and expected to be able to speak eloquently and and schmooze or whatever and yeah, i was just, just like, a lot of schmoozing ah, pressure i thought my work was supposed to speak for me like <laughs> but it was a great year, and I was really actually happy that I didn't win that year because I just was not ready for that amount of attention to suddenly have some gold stature in my hand and everyone asking me even more questions like, I don't think I was ready. Plus, Chris Cooper was incredible in adaptation, yes. and I was so happy. Yeah. I felt like, well, one of the good guys won, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was very satisfying. And the whole thing, just the fact that I that that all those movies put me in that room was like, I already won, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Got yeah. to wear a tuxedo and sit next to Marty Scorsese, you know. So has your point of view on all of it changed in the in the years since? I mean, well, I'm a lot older than I was then, <laughs> and I've done a lot more work, and I've I'm coming up on something like 80 movies now, and now I come to see it as, you know, especially with a film like The Sisters Brothers, it's a vital and one of the last avenues to get something that's not a superhero movie to an audience. Yeah. You know, it's become this, you know, it's, I think it maybe started out as kind of like a salesman of the year kind of award, you know? Yeah. <laughs> it was like an inside kind of industry thing, like, you know, like they do for plumbers or whatever, you know, like, great job selling shower rings this year or whatever. But now it's become this necessary component of the marketing of films that don't have immense $100 million budgets, you know? Yeah. So absolutely. now I see it as a very... I understand why now that it's not about me or my ego. Yes, it's very nice to be acknowledged by your peers, of course, but it's it's a really vital way of getting the film to audiences and and continuing the attention and um and the marketing of the film essentially, you know. Are you surprised that Adam McKay has pivoted from making crazy comedies to the, being doing all this prestige stuff in film and no, on, on I'm TV? not surprised at all. You know, if you know Adam, he's one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. First of all, like incredible, incredible brain on that guy, and also one of the most subversive people. You know, you can dismiss comedy, but great comedy is very smart. You know, yeah. In order to really stay ahead of an audience and really, I mean, I love pratfalls and that kind of thing. Of course, there's a magic to that kind of comedy, but the sort of work that Adam McKay does is so deeply subversive. You know, and a movie like Step Brothers is it's based so much in real stuff and real family dynamics and parent-child relationships <laughs> like it's not it doesn't let you off the hook you know so if yeah. you know adam and you know how intelligent and subversive he is it's just you know comedies i think were just a real easy way to tell the truth about the world for adam and now he's been given you know a larger canvas on which to work so well there's a bit of a there is a sort of cliche that it's easier to move 
partly because of the technical thing you're talking about with Steve Coogan. It's easier to move from comedy to drama than the other direction because comedy is so unforgiving. Like you either get the laughs or you don't. Yes, but that's, yeah. Yeah, not to toot my own horn, but there's very few people that go back and forth the way yeah. I, I do. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and I think it's because I don't think of them as two different things. You know, I don't think of comedy as, well, we can't be too dramatic here. I, I My thinking with acting is you never let the audience off the hook. If you're being funny, don't be afraid to make them upset about something. And if you're being dramatic, you know, give them, give them a little uh, pressure relief once in a while because that's the way life is, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you how many, you know, hilarious moments at funerals I've had. <laughs> and also, like, you know, bittersweet moments uh, when you're having uh, a really joyful time doing something. So that, to me, is just being honest about life. Well, this should be a joyful time for you. You've got all these great movies. So thank you so much for coming by and spending some time with us. And thank you. And we're all looking forward to seeing all four of the films this year. I'm really happy to have been here, and I appreciate your support for the Sisters Brothers in particular. That does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Thank you for listening. Find us on Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review. Tell people about us, uh, and we'll guide you through award season as best we can. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, and we're on Twitter at Little Gold Men, where we love to hear from you. We're also on our own. I'm at Katie Rich, Richard. Rylas. And Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Joanna. Joe wrote this. This episode was edited and produced by Danielle Roth, and this week's award for the reason you should go ahead and watch the video of us talking at Toronto about all the films we saw there goes to Richard Lawson. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the gifts are, are, are on their way. Uh, if not already being made as we speak, 